Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I am your host, Aaron Weiss, with the Center for Western Priorities in Denver, Colorado. And I'm your co-host, Kate Gretzinger, in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today we're going to be talking about the entwined histories of Saudi Arabia and Arizona. But before we get to that, we've got to touch on the multiple pieces of big news that came out of Alaska this week. We've got Jenny Roland Shea, Public Lands Director at the Center for American Progress here to help us make sense of everything. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, let's start with the good news that came out of Alaska this week. On Sunday, the Biden administration announced that it's protecting the entire Arctic Ocean from oil and gas drilling, as well as starting a rulemaking process to take up to 13 million acres of the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska, or NPRA, off the table for drilling. Um, Jenny, how big of a deal is that, um, especially that rulemaking process, and how does that work? Yeah, so it's a pretty big deal, or at least has the opportunity to be. The Western Arctic, um, which, as you mentioned, the NPRA, is one of the largest stretches of undeveloped land in the U.S. Um, And so these regulations have the opportunity to stop any new oil and gas leasing in these so-called special areas. These are areas that have already been identified for their really incredible wildlife habitat for their subsistence values for Alaska Native communities um, and other kind of wildlife and ecosystem services that they have. So it really provides an opportunity for uh, the administration to protect these areas as much as they can. Um, Unfortunately, some of these areas do already have oil leases um, already sold. So it won't be able to address those um, things that are already owned by folks like ConocoPhillips and others. But in terms of conservation, these really critical wildlife areas, they can get protected from any new oil and gas leasing. The process itself has not formally kicked off yet, but in around May or the next couple of months, we should see a comment period open where people can weigh in on how strong the administration should go and and what kind of protections and values they want to see. And of course, this is not happening in a vacuum. They announced these protections uh, about 24 hours before they announced approval of that massive Willow oil and gas project in much of these same areas where there all are already existing leases and I mean, it's a, it's an $8 billion project expected to produce 600 million barrels of oil and output the carbon equivalent of putting 2 million cars on the road every year. So as you look at this a good announcement of future protections alongside what is widely acknowledged to be a carbon bomb in, in the Arctic, how do you... How do you measure the good and the bad? Do they do these decisions offset each other? You know, this is not a tit for tat kind of uh, negotiation. The Willow decision was a bad decision by the Biden administration. It will have a lot of consequences for the climate, for conservation in the area, for the community of Nuiqsut that's right there. Um, but we really need to be able to separate that from some of the good things that Biden's also moving on at the same time um, and push them to make sure these regulations are strong and that they uphold the promises that they've made otherwise in their uh, campaigns to commit to 30 by 30 and to commit to lowering overall greenhouse gas emissions. And there are other aspects um, and other ways that they can take on to make that happen. 
Jenny, what are some of those other ways um, that the Biden administration can sort of offset this terrible Willow decision? The administration needs to figure out how they're going to factor climate risk into their oil and gas decision making so that something like Willow doesn't continue to happen again and again. Right now, we have a deeply flawed system that favors the financial interests of people like ConocoPhillips over climate concerns. And and the administration still needs to figure out how they can ensure that these decisions are being made without locking the country into an energy future that ignores the climate crisis. But some other things that they can do in the near term, you know, include protecting other sensitive lands from drilling and mining. That includes the um, regulations in the NPRA they just opened, but also, you know, new national monuments, expanding national wildlife refuges, withdrawing other lands from future drilling and mining. Um, On the conservation side as well, making sure that they are protecting the nation's oldest carbon storing forests. We know that carbons, uh, that forests like the Tongass hold a ton of carbon. Um, And so that is another action that they can take to um, to kind of manage this decision. Um, and then lastly, I would put in there just rebalancing how public lands are managed so that they are not prioritizing oil and gas, but are being managed to conserve the most treasured places. And so that activities like um, uh, outdoor recreation, places for wildlife habitat, uh, migration corridors, sacred sites are protected and we're using those lands for their highest and best use. Let me ask you as a last question here to put on your political analyst hat for a moment and just take a stab. What the hell were they thinking? Is this a political decision? Is this a an electoral decision? Is this we, we just need to do something nice for Lisa Murkowski? Uh, what goes or is it a legal calculus? We will lose this case anyway uh, if if we don't approve it. What What was the what do you think? was going on over at the White House as this got finalized? Yeah, unfortunately, I think this must be a political decision. The politics in Alaska for stopping oil and gas projects are not favorable. Um, They had a closely divided Senate. They still do. um, But Lisa Murkowski occasionally does vote um, or is in the wings to vote on on a few crucial decisions. Alaska also just got their newest Democratic um, elected representative um, who has also come out in uh, in support of the Willow Project. Um, you know, the Alaska economy is very much dependent on oil and gas. And so looking towards that transition and, and how we can bring Alaska's economy past oil and gas, I think, is another challenge for the Biden administration and and future administrations for making the the politics fit, you know, what the science says. Sure. So one more thing that happened in Alaska this week that we should mention is that the Biden administration um, announced it's canceling a Trump-era land swap that would have allowed a road to be built through the Eisenbeck National Wildlife Refuge. Proponents of the road say it's needed to provide an Alaska Native village with access to life-saving services. However, opponents point to the fact that the road could be used for commercial purposes, and it would bifurcate a sensitive Arctic ecosystem that's already under stress from climate change. 
Um, the administration says it's canceling the swap because it was orchestrated by former Interior Secretary David Bernhardt without public participation. But the administration did leave the door open for another land swap in the future um, that would go through the refuge. So um, that's sort of some good news, but not not great news. More unknowns, even on this Eisenbeck swap on a week of very busy Alaska news, to say the least. Uh, Jenny Roland Shea, Center for American Progress, always a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We're excited to have author and professor Natalie Cook here today to talk about her new book. Natalie is a professor of geography and the environment at Syracuse University and the author of Arid Empire, The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia. Her book explores the ways in which Arizona and Saudi Arabia have worked together to promote desert agriculture and how that work is connected to a global obsession with engineering our way out of ecosystem collapse. Natalie, welcome to the landscape. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So let's jump in. Um, I think this is, at least for me, the obvious question. You use the term arid empire throughout the book, as well as in the title, as sort of a shorthand for a more complex idea. Can you explain what that term means to you and to us? Yeah, sure. So arid empire for for me is a kind of way of thinking uh, about the interconnected nature of different kinds of imperialism in desert landscapes. So when I first started this project, I was thinking across many different global environments, uh, but I, I sort of narrowed in on the interconnectedness of the U.S., desert context, in particular the U.S. Southwest, and then the connections with Middle Eastern deserts and the place where I focus most of my geography research in the Arabian Peninsula. So what I learned in, in doing this research was that those two, um, yeah, those, those two desert places were very much connected with one another through uh, the, the ways that colonialism was enacted uh, with exchanges around, um, yeah, the, the challenges of living and, and uh, producing agriculture and uh, sustaining life in desert contexts. So for me, Arid Empire was a way of connecting those different uh, imperial histories and then also showing how they built one another, uh, both from, from the U.S. colonial project and taking over the desert southwest uh, and then using a lot of that sort of desert expertise uh, in building U.S. empire back in the, uh, in the Middle East and in particular the Arabian Peninsula. Right. Um, so you start the book off by talking about this um, sort of knowledge sharing in terms of date farming um, between the U.S. and Arabia. And um, I was sort of surprised by that because I don't think of dates as like a big profitable commodity. <laughs> um, so can you explain how that partnership came about and why they started with dates? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I actually didn't know this history about dates either. I grew up in Tucson, and I, I suppose in some sort of background reading of my memory of the landscape, I knew that there were there were palm trees everywhere, but I never really thought about the origin of that and and how they how they had arrived there. Um, 
As it turns out, though, from uh, throughout the 1800s, the United States was was a huge date importer, um, especially later in the 1800s. Uh, the U.S. was importing millions of tons of dates. They were especially uh, sought after around the holidays, around Thanksgiving and Christmas time, because that was it was the only time that dates actually arrived. Uh, so they they were a, a very lucrative product um, and very expensive. So. When um, the University of Arizona got its start in, well, <laughs> it actually opens its doors to students in 1891, but it really kind of practically finished um, some some of the first structures in 1890, 1891, around the same uh, time that you then had them setting up this agricultural experiment station. And setting up the ag experiment station was a, was was a project to get the university up and running, uh, but they also felt that it was important to cater to the interests of the local farmers. And the local farmers that were trying to settle uh, the territory of Arizona at that time were particularly interested in um, in any kind of fruit, uh, but dates were especially appealing because there was, as I said, there was a huge market for it. Everybody knew that there was a, there was a very large demand. So people thought that would be, that would be good in general, but also because of the desert landscape, there was a, a sort of familiarity, I suppose, with some Middle Eastern deserts, not from people's direct experience, uh, but largely from sort of biblical narratives and imaginations of the, the old world deserts. Uh, so when they thought about old world deserts and how they could transpose some of that knowledge and, and techniques of, of agriculture from the Middle East, dates seem to be a very logical uh, place to start. So the University of Arizona worked closely with the USDA uh, to to start importing a number of different varieties from from across the region and, and got got the 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 ag experiment station up and running courtesy of lots of lots of date palms. Similar story. I, I also grew up in Tucson and heard this kind of funny stories about the camels out in the desert that were wandering out by Yuma. Never really thought about it beyond U of A being. A, a land grant agricultural university, but your your book really it dives into this term agricultural state making, which I think is something that certainly I had never considered in the history of of the the university. Yeah, you know, I I also hadn't hadn't paid very close attention to this. I'm prim I'm primarily considering myself a scholar of of the Arabian Peninsula itself, and. I also have done a lot of work in in Central Asia, uh, so the deserts of Kazakhstan and, and Turkmenistan, these sorts of places. Where, in in these colonial histories, the the governments and the states that came to be, they really struggled. They struggled with the desert. They struggled with the people who were nomadic. They struggled in so many different ways due to the limitations of the human and physical geography of of those deserts. But I had never reflected on that history um, growing up in Arizona. And so I had seen how that worked in the Soviet Union. I had seen how it worked in uh, the the context of the Arabian Peninsula. And then, yeah, once once I started to pay attention to that and see the connections with Arizona, I started to see that, in fact, yes, agriculture was hugely important in getting people to come settle uh, Arizona. I mean, I think one of the one of the most interesting 
sources that I had for for the book was University of Arizona actually has this fantastic digital archive uh, preserving rural and agricultural history of the state. And people can go on and check this out. It's, It's really, really quite something. What you see there from especially the documents from the 1800s is all of these brochures from immigration solicitors. And these immigration solicitors are essentially, they're just trying to recruit people from the East Coast to come settle Arizona. And the way that they were doing this was primarily about agriculture. Um, come make make uh, your, your uh, prosperous and, and wealthy future in Arizona. The soils can support it. Uh, and, and so there was, a, there was a really strong effort from boosters of the state uh, to, to use agriculture to promote that settlement. And an important part of all of that is that uh, the, the decision makers in Washington, D.C. understood that when uh, the territory of Arizona was acquired as part of the Mexican-American War and later the Gadsden Purchase, um, they they had a very um, ethnically diverse population and there were a lot of indigenous nations uh, in, in the region. But the lawmakers in, in D.C. felt that there was not a sufficiently white population uh, to for, for Arizona to achieve statehood. So the the boosters of the of the territory who wanted Arizona to achieve statehood, they understood that recruiting those settlers from the East Coast was an important way to to get more white people to move to um, to Arizona. And then again, it's it's written extremely explicitly in exactly those terms in these documents. Wow. Yeah, I loved the, looking at those pictures of those documents in the book. It was so. It was kind of bizarre. It was like a tourism brochure, but it was like, move here, try date farming. It'll go great. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they, and they, there was always some, some cheery farmer yeah. <laughs> pictured with, with all of these, uh, you, you know, opulent landscapes, uh, which so, sometimes I sort of wondered how, how real those, those uh, landscapes were, uh, but, but they, they were a, a key part of creating that, that story of the desert as a place that wasn't necessarily dangerous and scary, because for many people from the East Coast, that's, that's what it was. It was not just a hostile terrain in terms of the landscape and the inability to, to farm, but it was also a place that was known to have to have very large indigenous populations and and groups that were actively resisting U.S. colonization. Um, And so I think that agriculture piece was an important way to convince people that, in fact, this this kind of um, opulence and luxury and civilization through the domestication of the land was uh, was a valid project and that settlers could believe and then trust that they could make it uh, if, if they moved out to the Southwest. Right, right. And it, I mean, it did go fairly well. I think you write, I think I remember this correctly from the book that they had pretty much success farming dates that it worked really well. And, the, and then um, that's a good segue into my next question, which is about this this agricultural mission that the U.S. led to Saudi Arabia in 1942. They went over there, the U.S. did, and people from University of Arizona went over to Saudi Arabia to, to show Saudis how to farm. Can you explain how the Americans ended up helping the Saudis um, when when they had sort of borrowed from the Saudis to begin with? Yeah, sure. So, so I, w- I would just kind of quickly note that there, 
in the 40s, it was not teams from uh, University of Arizona, although many University of Arizona researchers did go over quite a bit later, I would say like in the 70s and 80s, there were large numbers of them that that went and were working on various projects there. Um, But in the 40s, it was a a group of Arizona farmers who were sent over in 1944. But to get there, (laughs) we kind of have to backtrack a little bit, which is that there was this one person, and, and if people know sort of Gulf history in any way, they would probably know his name. His name was Carl Twitchell. He was a geologist and an engineer from from the U.S. He first went to the Arabian Peninsula in the 1920s, and he quickly befriended King Ibn Saud, so the the, the very first Saudi king, um, and served as his royal advisor from from very early on. Um, and he learned that that Saud was was quite keen on setting up the this this farm in the center of in the center of Saudi Arabia, uh, and Twitchell wanted to find any way that he could to kind of support the support the king, get in his good graces. He he was interested in lots of things, including getting yeah rights to mining, and that was his main thing that he was interested in. Um, but speaking of mining, Twitchell had worked and lived in Arizona. He worked in the copper mines uh, in the 19-teens before he first went over to Saudi Arabia. So he knew the the desert landscape and he started to use that story of his familiarity with Arizona and that desert landscape in promoting this idea of connecting the U.S. and Saudi Arabia through that desert uh, connection. And he sort of said, oh, yeah, you know, you, you see all of the these amazing developments uh, in, in terms of desert farming in Arizona. We can do that in Saudi Arabia, too. So he set up a number of different projects to uh, to to help bring this to fruition. So. Long story short, after working on this for, for quite a long time, uh, he eventually, Twitchell, uh, eventually got the State Department to fund uh, this project to send him on a mission uh, to tour all of Saudi Arabia, to write up this agricultural report and uh, to, to make suggestions for uh, different projects for how Saudi Arabia could develop its agriculture um, in the 40s. This was... I sort of read it in in Twitchell's um, documents and his diaries. I sort of felt that just from from all of his diary entries, that this was a front for him to uh, essentially get a justification to promote this Al Haj farm, which was this farm and just outside of Riyadh that the king loved and and really wanted to to develop. So as a result of that mission, he, Twitchell then went back to the U.S. State Department and said, "We." should try to get in the king's good graces. And a great way to do that would be to invest in this farm. And that was how he then got the funding for the second ag mission to Saudi Arabia, which was sending a team of Arizona farmers to help set up um, to help set up the uh, operations there at the Al Kharj farm, the king's favorite favorite farm. At the time, it was it was led by a man named David Rogers. He was working for USDA, uh, and and there were a few. I think it was one other guy who was working for soil conservation, and one other person who was working for um, the the Bureau of Indian Affairs. So, but but they were they were high school friends. 
<laughs> high school friends from Skull Valley, Arizona, um, and they they used that idea of their special expertise and familiarity with farming in the desert uh, endlessly, and the king loved it. And that led to a dairy farm, correct? There eventually, yes, yeah. So so there's lots of twists and turns in in this story, as you can already hear from from my uh, my tales here, but. In 1943 and 1947, the U.S. government also funded uh, two royal family visits. So the Saudi Saudi princes came to tour Arizona agriculture um, in 43 and 47. The 47 visit was from, at that point in time, Crown, Crown Prince Saud al-Saud, who later then became um, the, the king. He loved the dairies in Arizona. Like he just thought these were fantastic. He saw this sort of coordination between the dairy farming, the alfalfa production, and uh, yeah, just the the sort of ranching environment that Arizona had developed at that point by the time he got there in 1947. Uh, So eventually he got back to, to Saudi Arabia. He then became king, took over the farm and said, I want a grade A dairy farm uh, like I saw in Arizona. And so he really pushed this um, and eventually got a few a few different dairy farms to get set up there in in the Al-Kharj area. And this this was kind of the the heart, uh, the, the beginning of the Saudi dairy industry. And now the Al-Marai the, is the, a Saudi dairy company. It's the largest dairy company in the Middle East and, and a huge ag um, company across the region. And to, I guess, gloss over a whole bunch of history in between, jump forward 60, almost 70 years to 2014, and then you have this Saudi state-owned dairy company buying nearly 10,000 acres of land in Arizona to start growing alfalfa. Is there a straight line there? There's an indirect line, <laughs> uh, but 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 yes, I, I do think that there, there there's a number of factors that that make that a, a story that needs to be understood historically. Uh, so as as you just said, Almarai is the it's the it's the Saudi dairy uh, company that owns and and controls the alfalfa farms in Arizona that have created quite a quite a fuss uh, in in the last years. I mean, there was a little bit of press about it when the deals were signed in. 2015, but relatively little. In 2022, around the elections, especially the new attorney general and the new governor of Arizona um, really made those important uh, political issues, in large part also thanks to the fantastic uh, investigative work of the Arizona Republic researchers. So they've been investigating and and, publishing some some fantastic new information that, that we didn't even know back in 2015 uh, when those deals closed. So the the way that these <laughs> there's there's many ways that these uh, histories are connected. Um, but of course Almarai, as I said before, it's headquartered in Al Kharj, which is that dairy hub that got kicked off um, first first by the the Arizona farmers who really, really pushed the alfalfa production within Saudi Arabia. And they had done that because they knew that alfalfa wasn't a really important crop and it could do well in arid environments if you had enough water to 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 just keep keep pouring on it. Um, so the 
the Arizona farmers had pushed that and alfalfa has become one of the favorite forage crops for uh, the dairy industry because of various sort of um, properties of, of the crop helping to fatten the cows and, and produce high quality milk. Um, so that then, you know, okay, also uh, Crown Prince and King Saud uh, coming to, to Arizona and, and being inspired by that. So there, there is that, that connection. The other bigger set of connections, I would say, to what we see um, happening in Arizona today is is just what the project, the Al Hard project, did. Is it set in motion this uh, intense centralization of agriculture within Saudi Arabia? So there were lots of small farmers uh, around the country, but those were not the ones that were being prioritized in these early efforts to develop Saudi agriculture. It was about commercially viable, machine-driven agricultural production. And the concentration then, as a result of that, you need large amounts of capital uh, to do that kind of agriculture. So this concentrated um, agricultural power in the hands of a few. This is a similar dynamic as as to what was happening in in Arizona eventually with time where you have a lot of these mega farms owned by these huge, huge conglomerates. Um, So that sort of inspiration and the model of how to to produce this kind of commercial, centralized commercial agricultural production in Saudi Arabia was something that the U.S. farmers kicked off. And, and there were lots of critics of that. I mean, there was, I think, one one Dutch critic that I that I quote in the book who just lambasted this, saying that the, the, the Americans are just here concentrating all of this power and, and creating this entirely undemocratic system where it once was a little bit more democratic. Uh, so, so in that way, what you see with Almarai, Almarai is one of these mega companies, and it is it is the legacy of that kind of intense concentration of agricultural power in the hands of a few uh, in Saudi Arabia. This is again a long, convoluted story, as, as I said, uh, but in 2015, the Saudi government realized that they were completely running out of aquifer water the groundwater had had just the the water levels had dropped so dramatically that the government decided to um ban local production of forage uh so yeah animal feed etc and and green some of these really water intensive green crops but because of that concentration of agricultural power amongst these elites the Saudi government did not want to just wholesale cut them off. So what they did when they announced these bans was they subsidized any of these agricultural companies to go buy foreign farmland. And there were lots of other ways that they supported that, but that was the push, was to get those agricultural elites not to be really angry that all of a sudden they couldn't they couldn't grow their crops in Saudi, uh, but to, to say, okay, you can't do it here, but we'll help you to do it elsewhere. And where did they go? They went to Arizona. Um, yeah. So, so just to make a long story very short, the outcome here <laughs> is that Arizona is now effectively exporting its groundwater to feed cows in Saudi Arabia. That is correct. <laughs> um. 
Can you explain why Arizona is allowing this? I mean, I mean, you write in the book that they chose to buy farmland in this county where the state law allows for them to withdraw unlimited groundwater. Why hasn't the state changed that law? I think a lot of people in Arizona have exactly <laughs> this question. Uh, so, you know, I, I think the, the, the really fascinating thing about the Saudi story is that the, the Saudis were, were they they had been burned with some of their agricultural land investments in other places before. So one of the lessons that they took from some of those early failures with the farmland that they tried to buy in other countries where they got kicked out or the elites didn't like them or the farmers revolted, whatever it was, that they should go somewhere where there's not going to be a lot of political opposition. And what I saw very quickly when I first started researching this topic, everybody told me, everybody in the water sector, on the left, on the right, in the middle, that the situation is ridiculous. But the water laws in Arizona and the entire Southwest, because of the Colorado River Compact and all of these overlapping water frameworks, nobody felt that they could do anything. And everybody sort of felt, well, if you just push a little bit in one direction, then the entire thing collapses and then everybody's everybody's out of luck. So there was kind of this sense, I would say, when I, when I first started uh, looking at this in around 2018 or so, that yeah, it's not good, but we we can't really rock the boat. And that attitude is exactly what the Saudis were were interested in. That they they saw this kind of political paralysis around this. So back to the legal questions. Um, Arizona has a very curious groundwater uh, legal framework. So from from 1980, where essentially the state is divided between it has counties, counties of, of the state are either actively managing their groundwater, so there are active management areas, or they are not. And so it's re- basically only in those around the municipal areas, the, the urban centers, where you have active management of the groundwater. Everywhere else in the state that is not designated as one of these zones, there is unregulated pumping. So if you can get a if you can get a permit to drill, you can just drill endlessly. Um, I think I, I, there, there's a lot of wishful thinking in Arizona. Uh, that there's also a very strong, as in Saudi, uh, a, a very strong agricultural lobby, and so many many people uh, within agriculture in Arizona completely oppose introducing any kind of regulations. There's conversations that are starting about this now, I hope. Uh, the, the new governor just issued some executive action to try to look at some reforms. Uh, but, but will it change immediately? I'm not sure yet. And we saw this past election, there were two votes to set up groundwater management districts in this area. One passed, one failed. And I, I suspect we'll, there may be a follow-up episode for us here at some point getting into why that is and what the implications are. But yeah, very much a an ongoing topic of concern, especially around that that farm in Wilcox, where they're just uh, drilling wells so deep that the the level of the earth is literally sinking. Um, and I, I think we'll get back to, to that in some future episodes with folks from Arizona. But I, I want to get to one of the overarching themes of your book, which is is 
techno-optimism and a lot of that, I think, originating in some misadventures in desalinization that were not, I was not familiar with. Uh, what, why, I mean, obviously the appeal of desalinization is obvious. If you can take the salt out of salt water, then you don't have a groundwater problem. But why has it never worked? You know, I, I I also am continually asking myself this, uh, but yeah, I, just a, a little bit of background to this. So the University of Arizona had this environmental research lab, is, is what it was called. They set up their very first uh, desalination project in Mexico, in Puerto Penasco or Rocky Point, as many people know it. Uh, their they they set this up before even the environmental research laboratory became the environmental research laboratory. It was a solar research laboratory. So this desalination facility that was developed in 1955 was supposed to be run on solar. Engineering-wise, they couldn't make it work. But they they didn't want to to admit <laughs> defeat, uh, so they they first sort of powered this with diesel engines, um, and and eventually this is what they they replicated the same same project in uh, the UAE, or at least at that time it was the Trucial States, what we now know as the United Arab Emirates, uh, in the sixties. But they they. There, there was always this promise that it would run on solar, and I've been I've been researching sustainability initiatives in the Arabian Peninsula for the past ten years, and every year there's always some person and some presenters who are saying, "Next year we're going to have our desalination plants running on solar." It's not happening. Um, Just too much, too much electricity is that the fundamental problem? Yeah, it's you, it's way too much. Way too much power is needed is needed for it, and they're not able to 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 produce that efficiently and at the the sort of continuous rate that is needed uh, to to keep these plants up up and running. So that I, I think the the problem with with desalination is the bigger problem with solar power. There were some discussions, and this isn't really in the book. But I, I know another scholar who works on this. There were some discussions in the '60s, I think, uh, or maybe even a little bit later, about trying to run these desalination plants on nuclear, which, yeah, has has its own set of problems. So, coming back to Arizona, you write about biosphere two in your book. Um, and for people who aren't familiar with that, it's this crazy, like. Um, self-contained system that was supposed to replicate the uh, the ecosystem of earth and um, allow people to sort of allow allow um, it was an idea of like here's how we can live on another planet um, and that is it, it seems very similar to this idea of sort of uh, making the desert bloom and making the desert grow um, can you explain how biosphere is related to this arid empire concept and, and why they decided to um, do this experiment in the first place? Yeah. Uh, so, so it is, as, as you just suggested, the, the general idea was to kind of do this prototype for how, how humans could live off planet. Um, so, the, so the people behind it—I won't go into all of the all of the names. One of the big people behind it was John Allen. He was one of he, he was part of a sort of um, 
eco-catastrophist counterculture that that was really quite quite strong in the 1970s and 80s we we sort of forget about that i think today with all of our current versions of eco-catastrophe uh with the climate crisis but back then uh there, there was a sense in in the 70s and 80s there was a sense that that the planet was going to run out of resources and that we needed to prepare to evolve off planet and this this is like really the language of um buckminster fuller who who had this idea of spaceship Earth, which I'm sure many, many people are, are quite familiar with. Um, so Bucky Fuller's idea of, of evolving off planet was, was part of the inspiration. And you can actually see that in the design of Biosphere 2. It's these kind of geodosic domes um, where they're, you know, it has a sort of spectacle of, um, yeah, of, of techno futures and the the fantasy of, of being able to engineer um, opulence in the desert and how this relates to to arid empire is in in a number of ways but in in particular i think just from from the the, the broader sense of treating the desert as this kind of laboratory space and as a laboratory it, it can be a site for extreme hardship and a way to then demonstrate the effectiveness supposedly of, of a lot of these kinds of uh, fantastic projects is to do that in the desert. And so you, you lend the, 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 the spectacle of that, um, of that modern engineering marvel uh, more credence through having that, that sort of desert backdrop. Um, Beyond that, though, I think I've been in, in a lot of my work very inspired by indigenous scholars, and many of them have sort of pointed out that in this idea that you saw from the 1970s, all the way I would say to today, a lot of these ideas about the environmental apocalypse, um, they're ideas that are divorced from indigenous visions of the apocalypse, which for, for many of them, the apocalypse was colonization um, and, and the kind of uh, genocide that, that has, has resulted in and um, the legacies of which, which we are still living with today. So in this vision of Biosphere 2, it's this sort of techno-modernist way of engineering the, our, our way out of the climate crisis but it's on the particular white settlers vision of what that crisis is. And it sort of perpetuates that, that idea that we can just, we can continue to have this extractive approach to the land uh, without kind of concentrating on the injustices that, that we have today and investing in, in sustainable type solutions. Uh, so in, in that way, it's, it's very much a continuation of, of a number of the, the themes of uh, the, the arid empire. There's also a number of very, <laughs> very strange uh, connections with the Arabian Peninsula, which I sort of discovered in, in, in the research. But um, I, I would say at the basic level, that's, that, that's one of the, uh, some, some of the ways that, that we see that connection with the arid empire. I, I have a lot of thoughts here that we're really not going to get into because I was knee deep in a lot of the, the Biosphere 2 stuff also growing up in, in Tucson, having a lot of connections to Carl Hodges, who, who makes a number of appearances in your book. But your your term, techno-optimism, is absolutely, I think, the correct description of what Carl and Ed Bass, the, the billionaire who was the money behind Biosphere 
to brought to it. And I, I, I just, I, my, my, my personal thoughts on why Biosphere 2 failed is that they were trying too hard to make the very first time out be a, a stunt. It was a circus. And I was, remember the, the satellite trucks out front uh, and my mom covering that as a journalist when, when they, they went and locked themselves in as opposed to say, well, let's try this for two weeks and see how the carbon dioxide levels do, which would be the obvious way you build up to something like this as opposed to lock the door and then realize you're going to need some CO2 scrubbers down the road. But from a, uh, I guess, a, a both a scientific standpoint and also a getting folks to think about the environment in either Western ways or indigenous ways, was there, do you think there could have been a path forward that would have ended with Biosphere 2 being something that was not just the punchline of a Polly Shore movie. You know, it's it's hard uh, to, to answer a, a counterfactual in a way because of because of, as you said from the beginning it was set up in in this really problematic manner. Uh, so I spoke to a number of researchers at the University of Arizona, and, and many of them said that that once once the biosphere 2 project got started they they just completely had nothing to do with it they absolutely refused and they felt that their their legitimate scientific research was going to be subverted if they participated in it in any way and so early on i mean there were a few people who who got involved in it but for the most part the serious researchers just refused and so i think because it was set up along that divide that it it was it was problematic from from the beginning um but yeah if if there was if if there was not necessarily the sort of spectacular element to it i i think sure there 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 could and there continues to be good legitimate science being conducted there um but it was it was as you say it was kind of the 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 media spectacle and some of the personalities who were involved in it uh that that were that were quite troubling i think the other the, the other thing is that biosphere too it's so closed off there are no archives you cannot get people to really properly d- discuss this with you i in fact didn't even want to touch the subject when i started um, because i knew how controversial it was like i, I really just <laughs> kind of found myself pulled into it for a number of reasons um but yeah it's it's still extremely controversial within arizona and because many of those historical records are not accessible and they they have historically been extremely secret about it um it's it's hard to really get a full accounting of what could have been uh and and to imagine what what that uh what that institution could be um so bringing it back to water and arid empire, of course, the Colorado River Basin today is under extreme drought, and we're about to see some pretty drastic cuts go into place, um, especially for Arizona. I'm curious, based on everything you've seen in your research, how do you see this playing out in Arizona, in the basin in general? Um, what do you what do you think will happen, and and why? Hmm. Well, uh, with with the cuts coming up uh, due to the the low uh, Colorado River 
flows and and the, the reservoir levels. I do not think that Arizona has a choice other than to start to cut back on some of its agriculture. Uh, that this is this to me is the most logical place to start, and I think many people are are starting to recognize that. Um, I think that you can also start to see with uh, that there was some reporting about the suburb of, of, of Scottsdale. I think this the reporting a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times about this and, and a number of uh, other local media outlets covering this as well, uh, that, that some of these suburbs that don't have a special agreement already with uh, with different municipalities for how to secure their water, they are going to get cut off. Um, there's also been a number of Arizona projects that, well, at least one, <laughs> probably many more coming in the future, uh, big housing developments that are going to get canceled because they will not be able to have, have the water for those developments. So there, there are some of, of those things. I think it's going to take a little while. There's still, in my mind, a lot of wishful thinking about uh, about the water situation in Arizona, which is, to me is just completely unrealistic. The other very strange thing that that, that sort of came out of the uh, Doug Ducey administration in Arizona is that right before he, he left office, the, the, these Water managers in Arizona were asked to uh, approve this deal to further study um, this relationship with an Israeli desalination company uh, to build a desalination plant. Where else other than Rocky Point, Puerto Penasco, the place I talked about as the first uh, desal plant in the 1950s. Um, so they've signed, they've, they've, They've agreed to further explore this relationship. This this Israeli desalination company would build a five billion dollar desalination plant and send a pipeline to Arizona. Um, what actually comes of that, and and if it actually materializes, probably the soonest. Some people suspect by like twenty thirty or so. Who knows? I think it will happen. It won't be good in any way, shape, or form. I just read a, um, a, a report about it, it producing an expected uh, 300,000 tons of CO2 every year to run such a plant. Um, and and yeah. I just want to add in there, you're not just then dealing with the power of desalinating the water, but you have to go up and over mountain ranges to actually then get the water back exactly. into Arizona. So you've got pumps, exactly. all, along pumps all along the way, protected areas on the Sea of Cortez, huge problems with the brine that, that results from it. I I st <laughs> just knowing the way that these projects run um, and knowing that, that, that there continues to be this this. To, to my mind, completely uh, absurd idea that we can just engineer engineer these water solutions. Um, I I will I will not be surprised if they actually do build that plant and and it starts pumping water. It's never going to be able to satisfy the demand for agricultural production in Arizona, though. Even if they build this thing, um, even in the Gulf countries where. 97% of the water in any Gulf city basically is coming from desalinated water. They cannot apply that to agriculture. Uh, it's still too inefficient, even when you've got basically free oil and gas under your feet. 
we don't have free oil and gas under our feet in Arizona. Um, so yeah, I, I again, I, I won't be surprised if it happens, uh, but it's going to be uh, a, w- one way that people start to look at this. But in, in the end, the agriculture um, side has to get cut back. Last question before we go. As someone who grew up in the desert and then went back to look at the desert through the lens of academia, how did the process of writing this book change the way you think about the desert? And is there is there a takeaway you hope others have mm-hmm. when they read the book? Yeah, I've, I've, I have to say, when I left for college, I went to college in New Hampshire, I, I did not like the desert. <laughs> and then I went to college in New Hampshire, and I realized that green trees are really boring and they're just really repetitive right uh i cacti are way more interesting exactly and so i i think what's what's so fascinating and wonderful about the desert is is the sheer diversity of it and the different textures and colors and all of the life that 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 you see in the desert so i came to appreciate that after after leaving for college uh and and have really only my my appreciation of that has has only grown um now I also have have a different sort of perspective. I didn't used to do as much historical research. Um, so now I have a very different perspective of how that diversity of the desert landscape in Arizona, and I think I'm increasingly interested in, in New Mexico and, and uh, California as well, because they're very connected histories. That you can read, you can read those desert landscapes through history, and and all of a sudden you see that that this place has been connected to other parts of the world for centuries, and that to me is 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 such a remarkable, um, yeah, way that I've now come to read and understand the the Arizona landscape that I did not have before, and I think that's that's kind of a, a privilege to have. Uh, have have had the opportunity to discover some of those some of those histories that I, I was swimming in but didn't know I was swimming in. Awesome. Well, I think that's a wrap. Um, Natalie Cook, author of Arid Empire: The Entangled Fates of Arizona and Arabia. Thank you so much for being with us. This was really enlightening. Thank you for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode. If you have comments or suggestions for us, send those to podcast at westernpriorities.org. And also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening because it's a great way for new listeners to find us. Thank you again to Natalie Cook and also Jenny Roland Shea for joining us today. And thank you for listening to The Landscape.